Go to John chapter number 9. John 9. We are almost to the halfway point of John, and uh, we said that we'd be in this book for the better course of a year, and we just got done with two really big chapters, chapter 7, chapter 8, and uh, now we're coming into John chapter 9, whole different story, it it really takes a turn, and uh, I want us to look at the first 11 verses of this today, next week we'll, we'll round out the chapter and we'll finish the rest of it, but I want us to read John 9 verses 1 through 11. If you're new, uh, we love to just preach through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and I say this all the time, but it really allows the Bible to guide the conversation, and you can't hobby horse scripture when, uh, when you just pick a, a, chap- a book of the Bible and you just go through it verse by verse, because it forces your hand on what you need to talk about, and, uh, and here we are this morning, we're actually going to talk about the problem of pain. So look at John 9, verse number 1, this is what it says. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now that's weird, okay? Let's just be honest. That's strange. But he said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. The neighbors therefore, they which had before seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat in bed? They're like, Isn't that the blind guy? Like the guy walking around with sight? Isn't that him? Some said, this is he. Others said, "Uh, he's like him. But he said, I'm he. So there's kind of this, yeah, that's him. I don't know. It's just a lookalike. And he's like, no, it's me. (laughs) I was blind. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes open? How'd you get healed, man? How'd you become unblind? He answered and said, a man that's called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes and he said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And when I went and washed... I receive sight. The disciples give Jesus the big why in this passage. They walk by a man suffering, a man born blind. They say, Jesus, why? Why is he suffering? Why is he blind? Why is that happening to them? And Jesus gives us the answer, or at least part of it. The king of the cosmos weighs in and tells us part of the answer to the problem of pain. And that's what I want us to try to understand this morning. Well, the reality of pain and hardship and suffering uh, continues to be a sticking point for many Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, It's not uncommon for people to ask questions like, why does God allow evil in this world? You know, God's not good. Why do bad things happen to good people? I deserve better. They deserve better. Why do bad people seem to flourish? God's unjust. I'm better than they are. Why do I have it worse? God's unfair. That's real, isn't it? Don't we hear those questions from people around us or perhaps even from our own hearts? Biblically, what do we do with the problem of pain? This morning, I want to use this text as a springboard to try to help us understand this. I'm going to give you two foundational truths before we begin, and I'm going to give you four options and one big reminder. So we have seven points, which is more than double what I normally have for you, but we will muddle through it and we will, uh, we'll, make good, we'll make quick work of it. 
I'll tell you up front, though, that you understanding the problem of pain is essential to your life. Properly understood, this can really work for your own maturation in Jesus. But misunderstood, this can lead to a world of hurt. So let me give you two foundational truths. The first one is just a very unpopular yet absolutely true idea that you are not an innocent puppy. So I'm just going to start with the smack in the face and we'll get past it and hopefully you'll, uh, you'll love me by the end. When we ask these questions, why does God allow evil? Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm better than they are. Why do I have it worse? There's a presupposition baked into those questions, which is essentially God owes me a more comfortable life than what I'm currently experiencing. That many people think that God, that he owes you, he owes me, he owes us a comfortable life. But the truth is, biblically, if you look at Scripture, that there is a God who created us, who upholds us, who sustains our every breath, like all of the time, every second, and therefore we owe it to him to love him, to serve him, to obey him all the time, eagerly, willingly, gladly. Yet, if we're honest, time after time after time, we reject his interference in our life. We reject his authority and his truth. We resent him for his love and his wisdom and his word. And we decide that we're going to stiff arm his rules and we're going to begrudge them. And we're going to take all of these chances that God gives us to respond to him or to obey him or to make things right. And we, and we repeatedly thwart his loving authority in our lives. If we're halfway honest, you would have to admit that I've done that personally over and over and over again. And in other words, the the Bible tells us that we owe God and we give him very little often. And yet somehow we think that he owes us. That he has an obligation to go in front of us like a snowplow and just clear the path for us and make our life comfy and cozy and and just everything's easy and everything's all right. But I'll tell you very plainly, it's tough to hear, but it's the truth. God don't owe you. God doesn't owe me. He, He hasn't promised you a life of ease. And instead of asking yourself, why me all of the time? Really, the better question is, why not me? What have I done to deserve anything better? Why, why not the infertility? Why not the cancer? Why not the pain? Why not me? This, there's a brief little discussion in Luke chapter 13 with Jesus and his disciples. And apparently there was a tower that fell over and killed 18 people in Siloam. And the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, why did the, why did the tower fall on their heads and kill them? Is it because they were worse sinners? Is it because they were more wicked? And Jesus says... I tell you nay, or no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. They come to him, Jesus, it's because they were worse sinners. That's why they got that, right? They got their just desserts. Jesus turns the tables and says, of course they weren't worse sinners. Maybe towers should be falling on your head. Look up. That's what he says. You're not special. You're not an innocent puppy. It's not like you didn't deserve that, but they did. So, So let's not act like a comfortable life is a rite of passage and somehow God owes us that. And if we get a little bit of pain, God's given us the short end of the stick and and he's being bad to us. No way. God doesn't owe you and God doesn't owe me. Second foundational truth is that all pain is the result of sin in general, but not necessarily sin in particular. This is meshed all throughout scripture, but especially the onset of scripture when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. I love the way that one preacher put it. He, he summarized those three chapters and he said that basically man is the middle cog 
He said, have you ever seen a watch or something work where there's a cog up top and a cog below, but there's a middle cog that's supposed to turn and be in sync with both of those? Man is that middle cog. There is a God above us who rules over us and has authority, but yet there is nature below us that we are given dominion over, that we are to steward and to protect and to take care of. And God has given us rule and dominion, and we're kind of his, his vice regent or his prime minister over that, and we're the middle cog. And when that middle cog is working perfectly, then it meshes and it's in sync and everything. Everything works together. But if the middle cog decides that it's going to go up a little or down a little, that all of a sudden it doesn't work very well. That those, those gears begin to grind and mesh and crunch. And you've probably seen this in your watch that it stopped working or it's not, it's not keeping the time fast enough. It keeps falling behind. Or maybe even the hands start to spin backwards. What happened? That middle cog came out of place. And really, we are the ones, the middle cog, that decided we'll be our own masters. We'll do our own thing. And as such, there is a, a crunching of sorts between the relationship with the one above us, that that's not right, and mankind was separated from God in their sin, and there, there's a crunching of the cog below us that even nature itself groans, and it's not the way it was originally tended to be. And there, there is disease and decay and death inside of the natural order. And we see around us, Evil that is clearly human. Somebody shoots up Temple University in Philadelphia. Clearly human evil. But we also see around us cyclones and cancer. That's clearly natural evil. And God more or less said, none of this was my design. None of this was how I intended it to be. But all of it is the result of sin. Now, those two foundational truths, I was brief with those, honestly. But do those answer all of our questions? Okay, I'm not an innocent puppy, and this is all the result of sin some way, somehow, so that's all I need to know? No. I want to give you the four options, biblically, that you could take to kind of chalk up your pain to. Why? Why am I dealing with this? Why aren't they? Why, why was their child born with autism, but mine was not? Why did my husband die when, when he was at a young age, but they're still together? All these things that come our way, why? Well, here are kind of the biblical options you can take. The first option is wrath. Now, I mention this not because it's actually true. I mention this because it's, it's kind of a myth that needs to be debunked. The first one is, well, it's the wrath of God. He's up in heaven with lightning bolts, and he's zapping us because he's angry with us, and he has a frown on his face. Now, biblically, there is wrath, to be clear. You read the New Testament for any length of time, and that will become abundantly clear to you that there is a great divide. There are people who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, who are unsaved, the Bible would call them. There are those that do know Jesus as Savior and are saved. We looked at this last week at the end of John 8, that there are those that have God as their Father. There are those that do not have God as their Father. There are these two categories of people, and when someone does not know Jesus and is not saved, the Bible is clear that there is wrath, but that is primarily future-oriented. That when people do wrong, they don't get away with anything, but they store up everything. And that's actually, that, that is being stored up, that is there, that will be poured out one day. But in this life, those that do not belong to God or want to follow God with their lives, the Bible is clear in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is made manifest on them primarily by him stepping back and saying, hands off, fine, have it your way. That one of the worst things God can do is to say to you, you know what, have at it. I'm done interfering, you're not responding, have it your way. That is actually wrath. But that's, that's a lot different than lightning bolts. 
But for those who know Jesus, those who are followers of Christ, the Bible is very clear that wrath is no longer for you now or later. That wrath literally is an impossibility and is not an option. That you were guilty, but you've been declared innocent based upon the, the, the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ. That if you put your faith and trust in him, then there is no longer wrath, there is no longer guilt, but his righteousness is given over to you and God does not have wrath for you any longer. There's no judgment that abides on you. And the idea for a Christian to say, you know what, I think this pain came into my life because God is getting his pound of flesh and he's paying me back. It, it doesn't work biblically. It's not an option. It's not an option and it's untrue to think that way. The second option that many people fail to consider, a lot of people think it's wrath, but it's not. A lot of people don't think it's this, but sometimes it is, is cause and effect. This means that anytime something goes wrong, it's not demonstrable proof that you know, God was displeased with your actions or doing something. So for example, if one of our teenagers walks up to me today after, after church and has a cast on their leg and says, Pastor, I broke my leg. I don't understand this. Why do I have this pain in my life? I love football. I'm not going to be able to play football season now. Why would God do this to me? Why would, he, why would he make me break my leg? And I say, how did you break your leg? Like, was that in your sleep? What happened? Well, me and my buddies, we were at home and we decided we we're going to jump off the roof of our house onto the trampoline to try to springboard up into the treehouse that we used to play in when we were five. And you know what? It just went wrong and I hit the trampoline and then I landed and broke my leg. Okay, I see what's happening here. We don't get to pin this one on God, okay? You sowed stupid and you reaped pain. That's what happened, right? It's cause and effect. There, there's, there's, you don't need to shake your fist at heaven for that one. You were just dumb. But people fall into this all the time, this trap of things that just happen, but they want to find, you know, a devil or God behind the door. And sometimes it's just cause and effect. My, my car wouldn't start this morning. I was late to work. Why me? I forgot to read my Bible last Tuesday. I bet that was it. Someone gave me a cookie at work. It was worth 50 cents. I didn't tithe on it. I should have given that extra nickel. That's why my, that's why my car didn't start. No, you haven't changed your battery in 10 years and it's the middle of winter. Batteries die. There's nothing special about that. It's just cause and effect. It's the way that it works. But there is sometimes, there is, to be fair, discipline. That's a third option. Now, this is not for those who do not know Jesus. So wrath, future, or in the present in different ways can be for those that don't know Christ, but not for those who do know Christ. But for those who know Jesus, there is discipline. Hebrews 12 makes it very clear that as a father, he will chasten or he will discipline those who he loves to try to bring about right living because that right living is for our benefit and actually leads to a fruitful, productive life. That God, out of a heart of love, will do that to us. One of the best examples of this is actually contained in a, in a little a minor prophet in the Old Testament, Haggai. I preached through this about a year or so ago. Uh, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles because it's, it's almost a miracle to find it. Uh, it's very little in the Old Testament, but I put it in your notes. The, the people of God have things that are happening to them that circumstantially are very negative. And God comes to them and more or less says, why do you think that is? Here's what it says in Haggai 1. Ye have sown much and ye bring in little. Ye eat, but ye don't have enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe yourself, but there's none warm. 
He that earneth wages, earneth wages and to put it into a bag with holes. Ye looked for lo- much, and lo, it came to little. When ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man into his own house? That's a pretty easy to understand message. God says, you haven't prioritized me. You've put yourself above me and you're concerned with your own little world and you're not concerned about my kingdom or my, ha- my house and I'm God and I kind of notice that stuff. And wouldn't you know it? Circumstantially speaking, things don't seem to be going too well for you. Feels like you're spinning your wheels, doesn't it? Why do you think that is? That's what he says. Why do you think the rain hasn't come? Why do you think your cattle died? Why do you think you're investing heavily but reaping small dividends? Why do you think there's way too much month at the end of the money? You know what he says? I'm disciplining you. You're wrong. You're selfish. You put me on the back burner. You put yourself first. And I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to discipline you. What's happening here? Is God being petty? Is God trying to get his pound of flesh? Not at all. God's not trying to to pay these people back. He's trying to win them back. He's not trying to get them back. He's trying to bring them back. This is Jonah in the storm. Jonah runs from God. God sends a a storm. God sends a whale. You know, why? Because run from God, beware. He'll get you. No, that was grace. It was the grace of God saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to put you back on course. I have a mission for you that I want you to be a part of. But is that always why pain comes our way? Can we chalk it up to just those three? Well, maybe it's wrath. Oh, not really, because I'm saved. That's definitely not it. So it's just cause and effect. It's just discipline. If you think that's it, you'll end up like the disciples, because that's where they're at in John 9. They ask Jesus, Jesus, why is the man blind? I mean, they don't just leave it there open-ended. They say, Jesus, was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? definitely due to somebody's sin. I mean, somebody's getting disciplined here. That's, that's obviously the answer. So which one is it? Is it his own sin and he should feel guilty about it? Or is it his parents' sin and he should feel angry about it? And those really are, are the two tracks that the vast majority of Christians and non-Christians take when it comes to pain. Should I take the, the anger track or should I take the guilt track? Right? The anger track is... Did his parents do it to him, Jesus? Is it their fault? They sinned, they did something wrong, so now he's suffering because of it? Is someone else to blame for his pain? And a lot of people fall into this. If I'm in pain, if I have suffering, if something comes my way, then there's, there's gotta be a scapegoat. There's gotta be someone I can pin it on. There's someone I have to be angry at. It's very popular in modern psychology over the past three and a half, four decades to try to help people just pin all their problems on their parents and say, you know what? It's their fault. The father ate a sour grape and it set the children's teeth on edge. It's their fault. No personal responsibility. Just blame your family. Is that, is that the way that we should go? Some people go the anger track of blaming God. Why are you doing this to me? I'm mad at you. I'm blaming you. You could have stopped it. You say you're loving, you say that you're powerful, then why would you allow this into my life? Sometimes people just go broadly and they blame their problems on a category of people. They just pick a group. It's their fault, get them, right? Republicans to Democrats, Democrats to Republicans, right? Ever seen that? Yeah? 
What's happening? The anger track. My problems are due to someone else's. So I'm going to be angry about it. I'm going to blame them. Or there's the guilt track. Jesus was his own sin. Did God look forward somehow, see that he was going to be all messed up, see that it was his own sin and his own problem, and so God gave him blindness from birth? Don't look outside for blame. Look inside. It says the guilt track. It's all your fault. I must be a bad person. I must be an awful person. Otherwise, my life would obviously be going better if I hadn't done something wrong. In some situations, people combine these, and then it gets really crazy Lots of times children of divorce will put these two together. Mad at mom and dad for the divorce, yet deep down blaming themselves. I know it was my fault that this happened. And when you merge those two, guilt and anger together, it's twice as lethal. These are so common that we've turned them into ideologies. There there are so many people that literally live on these tracks. It's very common for conservative people to take the guilt track and to go something like this. You know what? I'm successful. I have money. This is happening. This is all the result of my own effort and my own uh, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, bootstraps. And I got an education and I did what's right. So obviously the good in my life is because of me. And so obviously the bad in your life is because of you. So if you want something to be better, yeah, you should work harder. You want more money? You should work harder. It's obviously your fault. You, you've, you want a better life than you should have gotten education. You should, what is that? It's the guilt track that's being turned into an ideology that's broadly being put on a whole society. There are those that that are a bit more liberal that will take the anger track and they'll make that an ideology. There's something wrong with your life, then definitely you're a victim. Blame somebody else, it's their fault. Have anger for your problems, find who's ever responsible and sue the pants off of them. Isn't that around us? That people are just stuck in that mode. These disciples are stuck in in this mode. And they say, Jesus, whose fault is it? His or his parents? Guilt or anger? Which should he choose? And Jesus says, neither. Neither. What does Jesus say it is? What he would categorize, he doesn't use this word, but what I would call suffering, what the Bible calls suffering. The biblical idea of suffering is that sometimes pain enters into our life, circumstances that we would not have chosen for ourselves, but it did not go by God unnoticed. It didn't slip through the cracks and he's in heaven like, whoops, I didn't know that. Uh, uh, what do I do? Got to adjust that? No, he's sovereign. He's in control. That God allowed that to enter. He could have changed it, but he didn't. And it's not his wrath. And it's not just cause and effect. And it's not discipline. It's something else. It's none of those. And it's what the Bible calls suffering. I think Peter does the best job of comparing and contrasting discipline and suffering. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says it's thankworthy. It's actually something that you can thank God for. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So what's he saying? There are people that actually have a good conscience. They're trying to live for God. They're trying to do the right thing. But they suffer wrongfully for it. That they actually get something that they really didn't deserve. That it wasn't, they weren't doing wrong. But then he says, here's kind of the opposite. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? You know what he's saying? You do wrong and you get a punishment for it? Ain't no glory there. If you go to prison because you murdered someone, serve your sentence, no glory to be had, you're not a martyr. But if you go to prison because you preach the gospel, okay, we're in a different category, now we're in suffering, right? And Peter says regarding this suffering that... 
verse number 20. When ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. He says, there will be times where you do right and you don't deserve A, B, or C, but it comes into your life anyway, and it is a good thing if you actually take that patiently, and it's acceptable with God if you do. This is where Jesus is at. Jesus, why is this man blind? Well, look what he says in verse number three. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Guys, it's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. It's not anger. It's not guilt. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This isn't sin. This is so that the work of God can be displayed in his life. This is a channel of God's glory and God's work to be demonstrated. I love those two words, but that. It's not sin, but that. But that means that there's divine intent. It means that suffering is never for nothing. It's not senseless. It's not just because. There's always a reason. And and biblically, you can survey the Bible and find a lot of reasons. I'm not going to to bore you with all the scriptures this morning, but you can find that perhaps it's, it's just to bring you closer to Jesus. You can find that perhaps it's to bring faith to other people who otherwise would not have believed. You can find that perhaps it's to serve as an example to people who will follow after you. Perhaps it's to mature you. Perhaps it's to bring glory to God. But there's there's an opportunity with suffering that there is this showcase of God's glory and God's working that is made available to you that otherwise you would not have had. Spurgeon put it this way. He said that the the backdrop of suffering is black velvet upon which the diamond of God's glory can actually shine and sparkle. That that suffering and pain gives an opportunity for the glory of God to be made manifest in in a much grander way. So this is a very, very nuanced view of pain. Jesus is not, he doesn't have a simple answer for this. It's not just his fault, their fault, oh, it's discipline, someone's always wrong. No, no, no. There's, the Bible has a very nuanced answer to the problem of pain. It's very clear that God didn't design the world to be this way, that our own sin has brought about death and decay and suffering and wrong and pain, and that one day God will make all that right. And it won't be this way any longer. But in the meantime, the Bible tells us that all of this is governed by God's control and that God actually controls pain, monitors it, channels it. There's a purpose for it. There's an agenda for it. There's a loving agenda behind it. Think Joseph. If you grew up in church, you know the story of Joseph, right? Young man, did right, hated by his brothers, wanted to be murdered by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. Potiphar's wife lies against him, goes to prison. The butler doesn't have his back and lets him wallow in prison even longer. And then ultimately God brings him out of that and he's at a place of prominence. And you get to the end, Genesis 50, where Joseph says, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. All that pain and suffering, the things that were coming my way that I didn't necessarily deserve, it it wasn't that that I was doing something wrong, but it came my way anyway, that God had an intention for that. So this, I think that this message speaks directly into a need that all of us have because we're just 21st century Americans. There's probably no culture in the history of the world that needs this truth more than us because we live in a very materialistic a very self-centered, a very self-absorbed, non-self-sacrificing day. 
And suffering can be used for good in our life in some extreme ways. Pain can be used for good in some extreme ways, but that's entirely antithetical to the culture around us. We're creatures of comfort. We keep inventing new ways to be more comfortable. Right? We don't just need a bed and a pillow. We'll spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on a bed that will adjust up and down for him and for her and will be twice as big as we need. And this one will be heated, but this mattress side is Casper and it's cool and, and it'll massage you and it will make you more comfortable because you don't need a, a my a pillow. You need a my pillow, right? <laughs> Best $50 you ever spend. You need to get that, right? You need to be more comfortable. We don't just have Cars to drive around in? No, those have to be air conditioning. We have to have leather seats. There needs to be a lumbar support for that. And need, I mean, it'd be way too inconvenient to reach underneath and push back manually. So we need to eh, the button and we with the window. No way. That's way too hard. We need to push the button and we can't even hold the button for five seconds. It has to automatically lock into place so we can take our hands off. What are we doing? We're creatures of comfort. We're trying to make our lives more comfortable, maximize our comfort. That's the way that we go. And I'm not against, I'm not against your sleep number or your Casper mattress or your, or your fancy car. I'm not, I'm not. But if you're not careful, you'll fall into this trap of thinking that God owes you this cozy life and that because you're a Christian, your life should be storm-free and should never have any pain. And I don't know where you got that other than TV. Because the Bible never said that. It says the opposite a lot, like a lot, over and over and over again. It beats the drum of, you can't expect that. We're told to build our lives on a rock, not so that we can be in a storm-free zone, but so that when the storms come, the house won't fall, right? You look at just, you don't even have to look at the Bible, just look at Christian history. Go back and scan the pages of Christian history for thousands of years, and it's filled with people who suffered immensely but found joy in the Lord. And it dispels the false idea of the prosperity gospel that as long as you live for Jesus and as long as you love Jesus and as long as you do what Jesus wants you to do, then, then you'll, be, you know, you'll be filled with happiness and, you, and you'll have good health. And if you, if you have sickness, then that's a faith problem and that you should always have money and you should always have joy and God wants to just pour it out on you and you'll never have pain in your life. That is, that's a bunch of junk. I'm sorry, it is. It's just, it's not, it's not in Scripture. A Christian understands that sometimes there are things that are just cause and effect that's just, it's just kind of the natural order that God set up because he's orderly like that. Sometimes it's discipline and he's trying to get my attention and he's trying to get me back on track. But sometimes it's neither of those. Sometimes there's pain and it's actually, I've done, I've done right. And I, I really do, I do apologize if you came to faith as an adult especially and no one told you that this may be the case. Because a lot of people become a Christian and they think that there's like a magic wand. It'll all be great. And it is great in the sense of you can find joy and contentment and peace that was never there previously. But sometimes you become a Christian and your family doesn't like it. And they ostracize you and they make fun of you and they belittle you and it makes your life more difficult. Sometimes you become a Christian and your boss at work hates Christians and he passes you up on the promotion for no other reason than that? Sometimes it happens. What is that? It's called suffering. 
So what do we do with that, right? Okay, it's helpful to be able to categorize the pain in my life. Maybe this is discipline. Maybe this is just cause and effect. Maybe this is suffering, okay? But what do I do if I categorize it as suffering? How do I respond to that? Well, I want to give you one big reminder. It's kind of two. I'm cheating, but I'll call it one. What does Jesus do in this story? Jesus, why is he blind? Guilt or anger? His fault, parents' fault? Neither. This is so the works of God can be displayed. So he spits in the mud, makes clay, and sticks it on the blind guy's eyes. Then he tells the blind man, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Now, what did Jesus just do? If, you, if, you've been to, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know where the Temple Mount is and you know where the Pool of Siloam is. Temple Mount, where this guy would have been, would have been the highest place in the whole city. Pool of Siloam at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel is virtually the lowest point in the whole city because water runs down and it pools there, right? There were other pools like Bethesda and places like that that were significantly closer that this guy could have washed at. But Jesus tells him, I'm going to put mud on your eyes and I want you to go wander around in the dark the whole city. Not a short distance. I want you to wander the whole stinking city blind with mud on your eyes and then wash in that pool. So what does this man do? He wanders around in the dark with the anticipation that something great will eventually come. But for a long minute, this is not enjoyable. And he's just bumbling and stumbling all over the place wondering what just happened to me, right? And there are times when suffering comes your way for the glory of God to be displayed in your life that you're just going to have to wander in the dark for a while. You're not going to understand and you're going to think, why did you make mud and put that in my eyes? And this makes no sense to me, God. I, I I can't wrap my head around this. And I'm being sent on a wild goose chase to wander around in the dark. Why would you do this to me? But we do that all the while knowing that it's not for nothing. That, that, that in this life, the glory of God is going to be put on display, but also that there is a future day that's coming, that this will be gone and will be no more, and we look forward to with great hope that one day I'm going to find the pool of Siloam, and this is going to come off, and this is not going to be that way anymore, right? But you have to have that heartbeat and that mindset to understand that when this comes my way, it's not, I'm not going to like it, it's not going to be cozy, it's going to be something that I'm not even going to understand, but nevertheless, I'm going to obey And I'm going to be faithful even if I feel like I'm wandering blind. And if you think that's difficult, my one big reminder is actually this. I don't think it's too much to ask because I'm pretty sure God did that himself. Right? What do you see on the cross? You see the only person who actually was an innocent puppy? The only one who never did wrong, who never deserved suffering, who never deserved the pain, who never deserved to go through that, yet goes through it and the Father says to him on the cross that he forsakes him and it goes dark. And there is Jesus suffering pain that he did not deserve, forsaken in the dark all alone. And what does he do? Jump ship? Shake his hand at the heavens? No. He is obedient, he is faithful, because he understands that ultimately he will become the showcase for the work and the glory of God like no one has ever seen before. 
His suffering is almost proportionate to the glory of God that's revealed there. And there are times where you are going to have to say, you know what, that's my pattern. I don't particularly enjoy that, but that's my pattern. That's my example. I love what, I'll end with this, Charles Wesley wrote the song, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. We normally sing this song on Easter morning. It's a very uh, popular song. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. You know what I'm talking about? And it's a pretty upbeat, peppy, like happy, you know, celebrate resurrection song. But there's this one stanza in the song that is so real, yet so hopeful at the same time. And Charles Wesley said, made like him, like him we rise. Hallelujah. Then he said this, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. What is Wesley saying? Come on crosses. Come on graves. I can take those because I know that mine's the skies, right? The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Is what he's saying. And it takes a very mature Christian and a very biblically saturated mind to understand that at times pain comes our way, but more or less like our model, Jesus Christ, we say, come on crosses, come on graves. Because I know that mine's the skies. I know that my obedience and my faithfulness and my wander in the dark is not going to be for nothing, that there's no purpose behind this, that this is completely futile. No, 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 no. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. And friend, when you've got there where Charles Wesley is at, when you've got there, you'll have solved the problem of pain. You will have solved that riddle. And although you may not enjoy everything that life comes at you, circumstantially speaking, you'll be able to handle it. And it will mature you and it will help you and it will help those around you because your mindset is right. 